Hey everyone, welcome to Be The Change. My name is Lily Mott, and today I'm going to be talking about how change comes when you realize that advocacy looks different for different people. My guest this week is Lily Painter, and I am really excited to share her story with you. Lily is an Indigenous advocate and organizer, and I got to talk with her about her work raising awareness about missing and murdered Indigenous women. I learned a lot through this conversation with Lily, so without further ado, let's get started with this episode featuring Lily Painter. Hi. Um, I'm going to start by introducing myself in my tribal language. So, uh, hello, my name is Lily Painter. Uh, my native name is Brings Water. I am a citizen of the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska and the Kiowa tribe of Oklahoma. I'm 21 years old. I currently do lots of like policy advancement work for um, Indigenous issues, mainly missing murdered Indigenous women and sort of like the intersection between like land and body violence um, for stuff like that, so. Okay, that was a great start. So I would love to go a little bit deeper and have you tell me more about what got you started with your advocacy work. Can you tell me about the experiences that led you to this point? Yeah, so I I like to say this to like people is like, I think that, it, not I think, every Native person grows up around the issue specifically of missing and murdered people. And, you know, when you're younger, it's like you kind of you take it in as just, you know, people go missing and that's just kind of how it is. Um, and so that's sort of what I've grown up with. I am from a small it's like a land reservation. Um, it's not uh, like state recognized by the state as a reservation, but um, it is based on our treaties. And, you know, if the government followed treaties, that's what it would be. Um, so um, so it's the Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation here in Oklahoma. And so I grew up majority like in a native town, always surrounded by not just my tribe, but, you know, all the other tribes that are centered around the reservation. And so I, you know, like I said, you grow up kind of like hearing about people going missing or, you know, kind of like violence against native people. But there's like one centering point that I think is like the start of missing and murdered people advocacy for me. And it was a text that I got sent in sixth grade by my mom. And it was pretty much just said like, it was like, you know, always typical mom stuff. It's like uh, stranger danger, you know, don't talk to people you don't know. Don't go with anybody you don't know. But there was kind of like a little like footnote at the end. And it was pretty much one that was like, you know, you're in a target demographic for people who want to do like horrible things. And it's like, because you're a native woman, like she literally like said that. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, like what? Like why, like why does that specifically make me, you know? at more of a danger to, you know, have something happen to me. And so really it's like from that point on, it was something that I like couldn't unsee almost, you know, it's like been in front of me, but it's almost like the curtain had been pulled back. And so it's like from sixth grade on pretty much. Um, so I think like that's kind of the anchoring point it started with lots of like local organizing, you know, trying to organize like MMIW awareness days at school, things like that. That's so interesting. And it makes so much sense that that text would kind of set off those alarm bells and just really stick in your mind. I don't think I've had a guest on this podcast who has discussed the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women before, and I'd really like to learn more. Can you tell me more about the background of the issue and what your advocacy has looked like to raise awareness about it? Yeah. So the issue itself is kind of like this uh 
not really like unstudied, but it's like an unstudied statistic and unamplified statistic that Native people, you know, broadly, but especially Native women and Native femmes um, go missing, uh, are murdered, or experience violence at a higher rate than any demographic in the United States. And, you know, that's something that we as Native people have known, you know, for forever, but it, it's not until recently, like, honestly, pretty, like, honestly, from 2010s on that, you know, there's been, like, research going on of, like, you know, trying to prove what we've known as Native people for a long time. And so, um, yeah, the issue itself is kind of just, like, what are, what is the cause of all of this? And sort of, like kind of tackling the fact that it's, you know, related to a lot of systemic factors and stuff that stems from, you know, the colonization of our people. The advocacy around it is a lot, it's a lot of grassroots work. It's a lot of mostly like native women doing community organizing at the front. So most people say like the starting point or most people recognize the starting point of like heavy MMIW advocacy coming out of Canada. You know, there's, um, there was a, there's like a series of time um, back in the seventies where, you know, there was just like a very, very heightened rate of, you know, native women being either murdered or, you know, being kidnapped and stuff like that. And so that's the kind of like kickstart of everything where it begins, you know, traceably, I guess. Um, but it goes like farther back than that. And, you know, it's like a very long layered thing, but that's like a brief overview of the issue itself. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. So what are some of the changes that you are really advocating for when it comes to this issue? What would you hope to see change in the future? I think I think it depends on like how you approach it too. Something that I had to learn like really fast, I guess, was that advocacy looks different for each person doing it. And so like you kind of go in and everybody's like, you got to do stuff on the government level. Like you got to do stuff on the policy level. And it's like, Yes, you do have to do that. And, you know, there are people who work towards that. That's sort of like my sphere. That's where I've, you know, kind of like planted myself. But, you know, for me personally, that kind of like advocacy toward ending this epidemic started a lot with healing from it. So like with kind of like where I've emerged in this area of advocacy is like advocating for the healing from the epidemic. And so like I, I like to use this example too, is like everybody is taking on multiple different roles like at the same time. So you have women who are, you know, they're policy writers, the people who are advancing policy, but they're also on the other hand, somebody who, you know, like my, I have a friend, her name is Agnes Woodward and she makes, so like red is like the significant color in the movement. And it's, it goes a lot with like traditional native beliefs. And it's pretty much, you know, there's a belief that like red is like a color spirits can see and, you know, just very like symbolic type of stuff. But she, I think, I don't even know how many hundreds of skirts, but she makes like MMIW skirts for each, you know, family of a victim and stuff like that. And she'll give them out for free. And it's like, that's her advocacy is like doing it through art. And so I think like for general change, I think I would say like, there needs to be like a general like worldwide shift in like how we view advocacy and like giving resources and funding to like what we would consider unconventional avenues of advocacy. And then, of course, like, you know, policy wise, like keeping, you know, a push towards renewing stuff like the Violence Against Women's Act, um, which was, you know, kind of a big discussion in the past, just like general state laws that are like languishing. There are just 
I, like, I don't even know how many I can count that are just, you know, in each like different state, like laws that have either been, you know, there for a while or like keep getting struck down and just stuff like specific to native people. And you see native politicians specifically like pushing really hard for things like that. So definitely, I guess, like in general, more amplification of like all of the things that are going right now and the people specifically who, like I said, you know, aren't aren't really out in a government space, but they're still like working to actually like tackle the problem through community. That's interesting. So I know that one of the ways that stories of missing and murdered indigenous women are told is through crime podcasts and many of which are so popular, but they can also be unethical and problematic depending on the storytelling approach and the mission of the podcast. What are your thoughts on the role that crime podcasts may be playing in raising awareness about missing and murdered indigenous women? Um, I'd just, I'd love to get your take on that whole realm of content creation and what effect it could be having. So like, yeah, this is like a big, like weird thing too, because it's like, I, this kind of like goes back, there's a huge disparity in the coverage of missing and murdered indigenous women cases. Um, especially when it comes to like social media and like organizing, there's like, on one hand, there's one group of people who are like, like you said, sort of problematic in the sense where they, they just like feed off of like drama of like people's lives. And I'm like, that's literally somebody's like, that's like a crime against another human, but they're here, you know, kind of just being like, Oh, like the stuff I've seen on TikTok specifically is really crazy. Like no, no like trigger warnings, no nothing like that. And they open it with the most like horrific line about like a missing native person. And I'm like, oh my God. And like, you kind of like see that with like Gabby Petito. So, you know, within a matter of like a week, you know, you had millions and millions of people, you know, amplifying this one story and, you know, not to say that she shouldn't have been amplified, but it's like, you really see how quick people are to, advocate and organize for like certain crimes and certain demographics and then you know when you have this whole like group of people it's like there's no there's no coverage there's no people you know jumping to say like why can't we find these five women who have gone missing in one week on Pine Ridge Reservation so it's like things like that um so in that sense I see like a need for like I feel like the people themselves need to organize around stuff like that so I I do see like that avenue sort of being helpful in a sense of, you know, covering MMIW, you know, as individual citizens. But I think overall, they're just, I think something that like most advocates in this area are working towards is kind of like educating how non-Native people go about actually talking about this issue. Because like, here's the thing is like, they also have to remember that there's, there's a certain like proximity you have to have to native culture in order to talk about it and it's like in the same way you wouldn't like like there's just certain things you just don't do like when you talk about like native issues and it's like it's like as a non-native person sometimes they overstep those boundaries when they're trying to help and so there's a lot of like clash there so i i do see a need for like attention on it for sure from social media and i think you know that can prove to be a good thing there's many like native led podcasts about this crime like the crimes that are happening and things like that um but yeah, I just think it's like a whole thing that everybody's trying to like sort out right now is like, how do we how do we help other people who aren't non-native amplify these issues without continuing to traumatize us about the issues? 
Yeah, that is really interesting. And I think it's a really important discussion to continue trying to have to strike a balance where non-Native people can raise awareness in a respectful way that, of course, avoids re-traumatization of Native people. So I have one last question for you, shifting gears a bit. Lots of young people, especially college students and high school students, want to create change and want to make a difference, but they may not know how to get started. Do you have any advice for those people who may be listening? I would say definitely go with like guidance from the people who like come before you. So it's not, you know, like native people are very rooted in the idea of like, like intergenerational knowledge and like felt knowledge, which is the idea that, you know, there's knowledge that transcends like time and generations. And it's something that is like ingrained in you. And, you know, we kind of say that in a sense of like, you know, we talk about like ancestors and like the people before us. And it's like that, you know, we have a connection to that and that's, you know, ingrained in our culture, but that specific idea isn't just reserved for native people. You know, everybody has somebody that they've come from. Everybody has people who have come before them, even if you're not related to them, you know, like I, I'm not related to a lot of like native women who have been, you know, in this movement since the fifties and the forties and the thirties, but it's like their teachings are the ones that have mainly like guided me and they guide like everybody else who's in this space. And so I think like in that way, it's like, you're able to take wisdom. You're able to take solace when things get hard. Cause it is, is hard work, especially anyone in a, in a human rights sphere gets not just burnt out, but you know, it's like, it's heavy mentally, it's heavy, like spiritually. And so like, kind of like taking that with you and just thinking about the people who've come before you and like how there's already a groundwork laid for you and like, whatever you want to do. Like if it's not, even if it's not human rights, you know, there's, there's always somebody who's come before you that's there to help you. Even if you, if you can't physically reach out and talk to them, it's like, there's still like inspiration there and there's still a path forward. And I would say like, that's, what's helped me personally is like, definitely like like drawing from the strength of others who have come before me. I really enjoyed this conversation with Lily, and I'm really glad I got to learn about the work she's doing. Lily is tackling such a difficult and pressing issue with her advocacy for missing and murdered Indigenous women, and I really appreciated her explanation of how advocacy looks different for everyone. There are so many different ways to take steps toward improving an issue like missing and murdered indigenous women. And Lily's advocacy is one way, but as she mentioned, making skirts for the victims of the issue is another way to make a difference. If you're passionate about an issue, there is definitely something you can do and a way that you can contribute to making change. So the best way to get started is to find that way you can help. Because as Lily learned at the beginning of her advocacy experience, change comes when you realize that advocacy looks different for different people. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and you can find Lily on Instagram at HerQLils to get connected with her. If you want to talk about anything I mentioned, please reach out to me by email at lily at bethechangepodcast.org or on Instagram at bethechangepodcast.org. Tune in for my next episode, but until then, be the change you wish to see in the world. Bye, guys.